Everyone knows the name Christian, but where was it first used? Believers were first called Christians in a sophisticated, tolerant, and corrupt city, a business power where all the wealth of the East passed through on its way to Rome. Antioch, in Syria. There, Barnabas saw what God was doing and introduced Paul to the church. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet program featuring the teaching of Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. Today, we'll be studying the account of how Barnabas went to the new community of believers in Antioch. Antioch was a city known by the pagans to be sophisticated, cosmopolitan, wealthy, and corrupt. It was also a city where the Holy Spirit planted a vibrant and effective church. Let's listen now to Dr. Boyce. Returning tonight to the 11th chapter of Acts. Now, it's important to note when we come to verse 19 that Luke is deliberately picking up on where he had left off the expansion of the gospel to the Gentile cities in chapter 8. If you turn back to chapter 8, verse 4, you'll find there virtually the same words that we find here in chapter 11. Chapter 11, 19, we read, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message. You go back to the 8th chapter, and that's almost the same thing. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Now, at that point in chapter 8, it picked up with the ministry of Philip, who began to take the gospel into mixed regions, that is, regions that were part Jewish and part Gentile. The Samaritans were a mixed race in that respect. So it begins with his ministry there. And then we saw, as we read through the 8th, ninth, and 10th chapters, that God expanded that. So the gospel was preached not only in Samaria, which was composed of those who were both Jew and Gentile, but eventually to the Ethiopian, then up the coast of the Mediterranean, eventually to Caesarea, largely to Jews. But then, as we saw in this great vision that Peter received in the direction that he had for his ministry to a Roman citizen, this centurion Cornelius. And we saw that when the gospel was preached to him and his household, they all believed and were received as members of the church just as those who were Jews. So already we've noticed a great expansion. Now here we have the same thing, only here it goes a bit further. You see, when the gospel was preached in Caesarea to Cornelius, the Roman, he was at least what was described in that story as a God-fearer. That's to say, he wasn't a Jew, he wasn't even a half-Jew, the way the Samaritans were, but he was the kind of Gentile that was attracted to Jewish religion. He sat in the back of the pews where the Gentiles had to sit in a section that was especially reserved for them. They could come and they could listen, but they were not circumcised. They were not members of the Jewish race. The Jews were glad to have them. They thought it was beneficial for them, but nevertheless, that's where they sat. But nevertheless, that was his context, you see. He had already begun to learn something about the God of Israel. Now, in the city of Antioch, where... The mission now in these verses is described. We find the preaching given now not just to Jews and 
Not just to those who are part Jewish, or not even to Gentiles who are God-fearers, but to those we would have to call just utter pagans. Because it was a pagan city, and when it says, as it does, that there were certain of them that went and began to speak to Greeks also, that is, to the Gentiles, well, these are people who were coming right out of paganism. Well, you see the progression. This is not an incidental or haphazard telling of the story. Luke is showing step by step exactly what happened. And moreover, when we begin to understand that, we understand why it was necessary to have the previous chapters. You might have said, if you were writing this as a sheer historian, that this business in chapter 11 should have followed right after what we're told of in chapter 8. Here, the gospel is expanding to the Ethiopian and along the coast and all of that. Now, why didn't it just go right on and say that now it established root in Antioch? Well, it's because you needed the kind of preparation that you have in chapter 10. It was difficult for the Jews to understand how the gospel could be proclaimed to Gentiles. And so step by step, God began to show that it was possible for the Gentiles to hear the gospel and come to Christ and be saved and have all the privileges that anybody else in the church of Jesus Christ have and to do that without becoming Jews in the first place. And moreover, that that gospel didn't have to be preached only, first of all, to those who showed some interest, but it was to be taken by the disciples of Christ and to be preached everywhere, allowing the Holy Spirit, who blesses the preaching of the gospel, to cause it to bring forth fruit in whomever God chose to save. Well, you see, by the time we get to chapter 11, we're getting much closer to the kind of evangelism you and I know today. Oh, it's true. Often we speak, indeed in the churches, we speak largely to those who have some acquaintance with the gospel, some interest in religion, even if they're not saved, or they're there in the church, if they have some sort of interest in the kind of things we're talking about, and we preach the gospel to them in the churches. We are evangelistic, as well as just doing teaching messages. But the chief burden of our evangelistic witness today is to those who are without. We are to go into the whole world with the gospel, even to the pagans, even to those that don't want to hear it. And what we have here in this chapter now is the beginning of that kind of pattern. It's significant, you see, that a chapter from now, when we get to chapter 13, that it is from Antioch, this city, that the great missionary movement led by the Apostle Paul starts. Here is a city where there's a church composed of people converted out of paganism. So naturally, these people have on their minds and their hearts the pagans from which they had come. And so the missionary movement as such starts out from there. Now, the city of Antioch is an interesting city. It was founded, this city in Syria, there's a number of Antiochs, but this one is in Syria. It was founded after the conquests of Alexander the Great by one of his generals. You know, I'm sure that after the death of Alexander, the great kingdom that he had established divided into four parts. And one of those parts was ruled over by a man named Seleucus. That part was roughly what we would call Syria, and this man, Seleucus, established the city. You see, it was an important city. It was on the river Orontes, where it 
could trade, that is, down the river with the coast and the Mediterranean, and yet it was far enough inland that it was strategically centered to be a command post for the area of Syria. To the Arabs, the natural capital of this area of the world was Damascus. But you see, the Greeks came from further west, and the Romans did likewise, and so to them, Antioch, and not Damascus, was the natural capital. So it grew in importance when Ptolemy later conquered Seleucus and established his kingdom. He made Antioch the official capital of this area. And so it grew, and it became a great cosmopolitan city. A great mingling of people here. As we read Acts, we find that each of these cities has its own character. It's one evidence of the veracity of Luke as an historian. Jerusalem is very much a Jewish city. It's filled with volatile Jewish temperaments and great hatred of the Gentiles. Rome, quite a different city, a city well aware of the power of the empire and the emperor and people much in fear of the Roman government and so on through all these different cities. Athens, the great intellectual capital of the day. Now, Antioch had his own character, and the character of Antioch was, as I said, that it was very cosmopolitan. You had a great mixture of people in this city. Very geography would indicate that. It was north of the Jewish states, and so a lot of Jews were naturally up there. Josephus tells us there were 25,000 in his day. It was also in Syria, so you had many of the Arab peoples there. And then there were the Greeks, who were the descendants of the Seleucids and Ptolemy, and then eventually there were the Romans. And it was situated in such a way that there was a great amount of trade. It had grown by this time to be the third most important city in the empire. Rome was first, Alexandria was second in Egypt, and then there was Antioch of Syria, and obviously because of its trade. Cities in Egypt produced the grain that came to Rome. They were important for that reason, as well as for cultural reasons. And Antioch was chiefly a business city. All of the wealth of the east flowed through Antioch on its way to Rome. All the armies marched through Antioch back and forth and see what kind of a city it was. Sophisticated, tolerant. Yes, tolerant. Everybody there with all these different backgrounds lived side by side. It was somewhat like the American ideal. And yet, at the same time, it was a very corrupt city. It was corrupt not only because we look back on it as Christians and say, well, we know some of the things that went on there. It was corrupt. Even the ancients thought that Antioch was corrupt. It had a grove outside the city that was called the Grove of Apollo. It was a place of licentious sexual indulgence. People went there for that reason. It was like an outdoor brothel. As a matter of fact, it was so well-known for its debauchery, that on one occasion, not long after this, when a Roman senator in the Senate chamber in Rome was trying to describe how Rome, which once had been upright in the days of the Republic, had become corrupted by the moral values of the East, he referred to the River Orontes, on the banks of which Antioch was situated, and said in picturesque language, the Orontes has flowed into the Tiber. That's what the Romans thought of the city. And yet it was here in this cosmopolitan, mixed business city, which at the same time was most corrupt, that this great, great church was established. 
a church that had a mixture of races, a church that was grounded in the Word, and a church which, because it was grounded in the Word and was anxious to obey Jesus Christ, became the first great missionary church of the New Testament. Now, we're told how things got going. People who had been scattered there, as well as to other places, as a result of the persecution in Jerusalem. And some of those who were scattered went, we're told, to Phoenicia and Cyprus, that is the island off the coast, to which the missionaries themselves later returned, and Antioch, telling the message, first of all, only to Jews. There were some of them there, some who had been scattered, no doubt of Jewish background, perhaps with a great deal of contact with their Gentile neighbors, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, Cyrene from North Africa, who went to Antioch and we are told, began to speak to the Greeks also. As they went right into the heart of paganism and began to preach the gospel. We're told what to us is good news, namely that as they told the good news about Jesus, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now this news got back to Jerusalem. It would seem that the news was always getting back to Jerusalem. I guess it's always that way. Whenever anything is done, there's always somebody who run back to those who are supposed to be important and say, oh my goodness, do you know what's going on? Well, that's what they did. Somebody went down to Jerusalem and said, oh, they're preaching to the Greeks in Antioch. You know that? They're preaching to the Greeks in Antioch. It was bad enough, you know, that Peter went up there and spoke to Cornelius. I mean, that was bad enough, but at least he was a God-fearer. But now in Antioch, they're just going out in the streets and I'm talking to everybody. Better do something about that. And so the church in Jerusalem got together and they dispatched someone to go up and that man was Barnabas. Now we know who Barnabas is because he's already been introduced to us. Earlier when we were told about the setting aside of the first deacons and the deacons were mentioned and named, Barnabas was one of them. Two of them were named with particular emphasis bunch of them there, but Stephen the first, because he was the first martyr, and then Barnabas, who we are told even at that point was named Barnabas because his name means a son of encouragement. That wasn't his original name, but he was named Barnabas because he had a gift of encouraging other people in the Christian life. At any rate, these Jews in Jerusalem looked around and said, we have to send somebody up there. I don't know why at this point they didn't send Peter. It might be that Peter was just involved. It might be that the others were scattered. They were doing their work. And at any rate, Barnabas was a good man. And so they said, well, now, if anybody has judgment and balance and can handle a delicate situation well and can report back what seems to be happening, whether God's in this or not, certainly Barnabas is capable of that kind of task. So they sent him up, and Barnabas began to investigate. Now, it's interesting what he did. We're told, first of all, that when Barnabas arrived, he rejoiced at what he saw. Here God was at work, and Barnabas rejoiced. Our translation says he was glad. I guess it's possible to pass over something like that and say, well, of course, he ought to be glad. Here God was working. All these Gentiles were getting converted. You have to remember that this was a novel situation, and it was not a foregone conclusion that a Jew, he was, he was a Levite, a priest, Although he had lived on Cyprus and had some experience of Gentile communities, it was not a foregone conclusion that a Jew was going to rejoice in such a situation. He might have said begrudgingly, well, I guess 
The Gentiles have a right to hear too, you know, if they must. God determined to do that. Well, let God do what God will do. I won't stand in his way. He might have looked at the situation like that, but he didn't. He had a real heart for what God was doing. And so when he saw that the gospel was bearing fruit in the Gentile communities, he, he was really glad to see it. He was so happy. It wasn't his denomination. It wasn't his people. It wasn't his city. But here God was working, and he was happy. We had to learn from that. A lot of things we had to learn here. We had to learn to be happy when God works somewhere else. All of us are happy, or at least most of the time we're happy when he works in our midst. If he buzzes our denomination, our church, our people, our family, when he does it somewhere else, well, we're not always so happy. You know, he thinks somehow those other people don't deserve it. At least they don't deserve it as much as we do. And so we kind of hold back. We're not quite happy. And then again, we see that not only did he rejoice at what was going on, he encouraged them. So he was not only happy, he got in there right with them side by side. He said, if God is working here, well, I want to be at work where God's at work. And his gift was the gift of encouragement. So he said, I want to put my gift to work in this city where God is so evidently working. I wonder if the two don't go together. When you're really glad about what God is doing, you get in there and work with other people. And when you work with other people where God is working, you inevitably are glad about it. The reason why some of us are so sour, I suppose, is that we stand back and we say, well, let God work, or we say, which I think maybe is even worse, let them work, let somebody else do it. We don't get in there. We don't pitch in. But when you do, you know, well, then some of the joy of the blessing that God brings rubs off. You're not in a Bible study where God is blessing people and teaching them and people are growing. You ought to be because there's a great sense of joy in that kind of a study. If you're not involved in witnessing in some way to someone, You ought to do that because there's great joy in seeing how God blesses that kind of a witness. At any rate, that's what they did. I think when we see this in the context of everything that has gone before, we see that God really had been preparing this field and he had been preparing the laborers. You see, when we were talking about Peter, we saw that that was true. God had prepared Cornelius and his family to receive the gospel, but he had also prepared Peter to go and preach it. Now you have the same thing here. God was preparing the entire Christian community for this expansion of the gospel to the Gentiles. And it was necessary that you have chapters 9 and 10 before you have chapter 11. You know, in our lives, we need to realize that that is sometimes also often the case. We tend to think because we're Americans and we like to think in terms of schedules and regular progress and certain amount of percentage of return on the things that we do, that the work of God should go ahead in a very formal, regular way. And it's always frustrating to us when that doesn't happen. Even in our own Christian lives, we think we ought to be making regular progress. And we go through, sometimes seems like long periods, but there doesn't seem to be any progress, at least nothing we can see, nothing we can put our hands on. We get very restless with that. And we say, now, why is God not working anymore? Well, God is working. He's just not working the way we want. You see, we think in terms of things that we can see. God thinks in terms of what's invisible. God is more interested in the quality of what is done than the quantity. And here God was preparing this whole church, getting their minds set to understand the nature of the gospel, that it was not a particularistic Jewish thing, to get them thinking in terms of others, of Gentiles and so forth. And he had to get that all straight, get that all sorted out before this great moment of blessing here in the church of Antioch could take place. And he had obviously prepared this man, Barnabas, beginning with him so very long before. We go through plateaus in our Christian life. If we go through 
plateaus in the development of our church is often for that purpose. We get something sorted out first, get in the track that God has for us, and then the blessing follows. Well, let's ask a little bit more about this man, Barnabas. We saw what he did. He arrived from Jerusalem on an official visit, was glad. He encouraged them. He asked the question, well, why? Why did he respond in this way? Well, Luke gives the answer, verse 24. It was because Luke said he was a good man. I don't know exactly what sense Luke intended that, but you can't read that. He was a good man without thinking of the way the Lord Jesus Christ handled a similar statement on one occasion when the rich young man came to him and said, Good master, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus' response to him was, Why do you call me good? Now, if anybody could have received that title, good, it was Jesus. And yet he said, Why do you call me good? And the point he was making is that you had to start with a better view of Jesus Christ than that. The rich young man was calling him good master, which was the equivalent of calling him good man, and he wanted the rich young man to see that either he was good God or he was a bad man. Those things have to go together. And yet here, when Luke speaks of this man Barnabas without any apparent difficulty or embarrassment, he says, well, he was a good man. And so we say, well, now, what's wrong? How are we to understand that? Well, the answer, you see, is what comes immediately after. He was a good man, not because being a man he was good. If he was only up to that, he would have to say, well, he was a bad man. He was a sinner like the rest of us. But it wasn't that. Luke said he was a good man because he was full of the Holy Spirit. He had the Spirit of Jesus Christ within him, and that's why he was good. had the Spirit of Christ, had faith, which is a gift of the Spirit, a fruit of the Spirit. He was strong in those things. He was strong in those graces. And it was because of that that when he got to this town of Antioch, he was able to rejoice at what was going on. You see, the spirit within him was bearing witness to the spirit that was in these Gentile converts. And he was saying, ah, yes, we are one. This is marvelous what God is doing. And not only that, he had faith that God was going to do more. And so he got busy and he encouraged them. We learned another thing about Barnabas at this point, and maybe he is most to be praised for this. Barnabas was self-effacing. Now remember, Barnabas is the official delegate from Jerusalem. He was one of the first deacons. He was probably the most prominent deacon after the death of Stephen. Anybody could come up here with any kind of clout other than an apostle who, of course, had special clout, it was this man, Barnabas. He could have come up and he could have acted a bit like a little pope for these people, saying, I am the official representative from Jerusalem, and I'm going to tell you what to do and how to run your affair. It has to be done just like the Jerusalem church, and I'm the official vehicle to communicate that to you. Barnabas didn't seem to have any of that spirit whatsoever. Where we see his spirit of self-effacement the most is not merely that he was glad at what was happening or that he encouraged the work there, but that he went out of his way to go and get a man whom he had known years before now in Jerusalem, but whom he recognized being led undoubtedly at this point by the Spirit of God as being just the man for this church 
at Antioch. You see, it was a mixed church. There were some Jews, but largely now it was a Gentile church, and these Gentiles didn't have any knowledge of the Word of God. They didn't know the Scriptures. They, as I said, were coming right out of paganism. What did a church like this need if it wasn't to go off in one crazy direction after the other, become weak, divided, and all sorts of things, the kind of things that happen to church? Well, obviously, they needed sound teaching. They needed to learn the law. They needed to learn the Scriptures, and in order to learn that, they needed someone to teach them. Who could do that? Who was capable of that kind of systematic, regular teaching for this Gentile church. And Barnabas thought to himself, well, that isn't my gift. I don't have the gift of teaching. I'm, I'm an encourager, and I'm glad to be that, but I'm not the one to teach them. I'd be glad to try, and, and so on. There must be somebody better than that. And so he thought of, of this man, Saul. It's interesting, isn't it? When they first met, it was after Saul had come to Jerusalem, and nobody else would have anything to do with Saul. Saul, at that point, needed Barnabas. And Barnabas, the son of encouragement, went to Saul and encouraged him and brought him to the others and said, no, you see, this is a man in whom the Spirit of God is at work. He's really converted. And so he brought him in. And then there was trouble, and Saul had to leave. And he went away, went back to his home of Tarsus and what we call Turkey. And all these years had gone by. But now, you see, it wasn't Saul that needed Barnabas. It was Barnabas that needed Saul. And so Barnabas said, I just better set time aside and go get him. Now he had to go a long way. It was about a hundred miles from Antioch up to Tarsus where he was. And he didn't even know, I sense, since it says he went to look for Saul. And when he had found him, it seems to me as I read that, that he didn't even know exactly where he was. He had gone to Tarsus. Was he still there? I don't know. Barnabas didn't know. But he thought he'd go try and find him. And so he made this long journey. Ironside, in his commentary, has a little speculative dialogue at this point. I don't know whether it's right, but he imagined that since we haven't heard anything about Saul in all these years, that maybe Saul was feeling a little bit discouraged at this point. God had sent him to be a missionary to the Gentiles, showing him what things he would suffer for Christ's sake. He'd stand before kings. That's what God had told him. He hadn't stood before any kings. We don't hear anything that was happening up there. Now, maybe, maybe... He was founding churches in these days. I don't know, but we don't hear about them. Luke passes over it, and Ironside imagines Saul sitting at home one day just a little bit dejected when Barnabas arrives and knocks on the door, and he opens the door, and there's his old friend Barnabas. Oh, Barnabas, it's so good to see you. He's sort of been down, you see, and Barnabas says, oh, I'm glad to see you, and I come for a very important reason. I have a great need in Antioch, and you're just the man for it. Oh, says Saul, I don't think so. I, I've been trying up here, and I haven't been doing very well, and uh, I don't know, maybe God can't use me. And Barnabas, the son of encouragement, says, no, no, you know, God needs you. This is the moment. This is what God has prepared you for. Here's a whole church. God is blessing all kinds of conversions. The evangelists are doing their job, but we got this whole church full of people who don't know anything about the Bible. We need someone to teach them. You know the Bible. You could come and do it. And so he pictures the scene in which Barnabas wins Saul over and says, now you come with me. He doesn't send him off, you see. He says, come with me. Come on now. We're going to go down there. I'm going to show you what I mean. And so we get there, and Barnabas introduces Saul to the congregation and says, Mother Saul is going to preach. And then he steps back. Saul, named Paul, begins his ministry. We're told here that they ministered for a whole year there with the church at Antioch, and they taught great numbers of people. That phrase, great numbers of people, is exactly the phrase that is used earlier when it says that there were a great number 
that were brought to the Lord. So what this verse is saying is that all those who were brought to the Lord were now taught. God had saved many, and now they taught many. God had created a church of a thousand, so they taught a church of a thousand. And for a whole year, Saul and Barnabas carried on this joint ministry, working together. That's great, you know. And that's really the way it should be. One of the weaknesses of our church planning in our day is that we send an individual out to do it, and he's isolated out there and carries on the best he can. God blesses many of those efforts. But you know, when the Lord did it, he sent them out two by two. And here you have two, Saul and Barnabas, working together with mutual and mutually supporting gifts. Saul, the expositor, the teacher, Barnabas, the encourager. And that's the way it should be. You know, I think congregations need to understand that. They look to one pastor or another, and they expect them to have all the gifts. I guess there's some pastors who are flattered by that and try to pretend that they have all the gifts. Congregation thinks they should have. Well, good, they're glad to have all the gifts, so they try to do everything. This isn't the way it should be. God gives one gift to one, God gives one gift to another. And congregation, where God raises up a number to carry on the work of the ministry, to lead it, well, that's only the way it should be. Because what we need are the mutual gifts of the various members of the body. That's true of the church as a whole. It's true of the leadership. And so we rejoice in that. We need to support people in the particular gift that God has given. God has certainly done that here at Tenth Church with a variety of gifts and skills among those that God has taught to lead us. Now, it's at this point where God has established this great church at Antioch, really a mixed church, Jews and Gentiles, but with many, many Gentiles, and has brought this dual ministry of Paul and Barnabas to lead it, and they've carried on for a work. It's in that context, which is the closest of anything we have seen so far to the churches we know today. It's at this point now, for the first time in history, that the disciples of Jesus Christ are called Christians. And the text says the disciples were called Christians at Antioch. Now, they had been called a lot of other things before this. first word that was used to describe them was disciples, because they were disciples of their master, disciples of the Lord. This is the name that prevailed all the way through the lifetime of Jesus Christ. And then it's not used quite so much after that, because the very word disciple meant one who was following along after a master. So it was very appropriate for the days of Christ's earthly ministry. Now, we are also disciples of Christ today, but the word was used in a special way there at that time. Then they were called saints, And Jesus himself had given them that word. He called them holy ones. Now you are holy because of the word I've spoken unto you. That's what he said. Now, we have ruined that word in some sectors of the church because we use it for people who we consider particularly good. And in some liturgical areas of the church, it becomes someone who is elevated to a special area as an eminent individual, one who's done a miracle or some such thing. That's not the way the word is used in the New Testament. A saint is one who is set apart to God, who is committed to God, who is devoted to God, which we are by definition when we become followers of Jesus Christ. So the early Christians sometimes were called saints. They were called believers. And that means not merely intellectual belief, but ones in whom the Holy Spirit had brought forth the gift of faith. So when the gospel was preached to them, they responded to it naturally because God had put it within them to so respond. They believed what the Holy Spirit said. They believed the word. They were called brothers. 
great sense of brotherhood and sisterhood enveloped these members of the early church. Nothing like Christian brotherhood had existed before this time. They knew they were part of a new order, a new order of humanity, and they were very conscious of that. Even the pagans looked at the Christians and said, Behold, how these Christians love one another. That's brotherhood. And then they were called witnesses. Jesus said to them, You will be my witnesses. And so they were, and they testified to the truth about Jesus Christ throughout the world. All those names. But you see, now here for the very first time, these disciples who were saints and believers and brothers and witnesses were also called Christians. What is a Christian? A Christian is a Christ one. Where did they get that name? Well, they didn't get it from the Jews because Christ means Messiah, and the Jews denied that Christ was the Messiah, so they didn't call the Christians followers of the Messiah, a false Messiah perhaps, but it wasn't the Jews that called them that. And it wasn't the believers, apparently, that called themselves that either. They had all these other names. It must have been the pagans, the Gentiles in this Gentile community, those who surrounded them. They looked at these people, followers of the way, these disciples of Jesus, and they said, ah, they are Christ ones. They belong to that man Christ. They're trying to be like him. I don't think they necessarily did it in a derogatory way, though in some cases it could be used in a derogatory way. I think it was a genuine confession of what it was that seemed to motivate these people. They wanted to be like Jesus. And you see, we should be like that too. Ironside says in his book that when he was traveling in China and was in Canton, he was introduced once as a Yesu Yan. And he didn't know what that meant, but he asked what it meant in the Cantonese dialect. And if I have it right, Yesu is the word for Jesus, and Yan meant man. So he was introduced as a Jesus man, Yesu Yan. And you see, that's exactly what was going on here. These Former Gentiles, these pagans that had no knowledge of Christ or the Word, were now by the Holy Spirit brought to faith in him, and they were Christians, Christ ones. And so they wanted to follow him. It's appropriate in that context that this very last paragraph begins to show how they functioned. Some prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them was named Agabus. He shows up later in connection with the Apostle Paul. And he predicted, rightly, through the Holy Spirit, that uh, famine was going to spread over the entire Roman world. Now, it doesn't say that Agabus told this church what they should do about it. He merely prophesied it. They, you see, are filled with the Spirit of Christ, and so they do what Christ would do. And we're told that they, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. So they did it. They collected their money, and they sent the gifts down there by the elders and by Barnabas and Saul. As far as I know, this is the first thing like this in all of recorded history, that one nation and one race of people would collect their own money and give it to support people of another race and another nation. Sometimes people would help their own families. That's quite all right. Sometimes they help their own nationalities, or in a certain city that had a great civic consciousness, you could take up a collection to do something that would help the city and benefit everybody. The first time in history, so far as I know, that a group of people collected money and then sent it off to help people in another nation who are of another nationality. But you see, it's the spirit of Christ within. They were rightly called Christians first at Antioch. 
Now, when they were called Christians first in Antioch, I'm sure you understand the sense in which that's spoken. This is the first place they were called Christians. But I want to close with this thought. Not only were they first called Christians at Antioch, they were Christians first at Antioch. You see, they could have been something else first and Christians second. They could have been Gentiles first and Christians second, and they could have said, well, we're Gentiles. Why should we send money to those Jews? Or they could have been pagans first and Christians second, and they could have said, well, we have to cling to all our old forms of worship and all the traditions of our city, and that had been very poor examples. But you say they weren't that. They were Christians first, first. Oh, they were Gentiles, yes. They were Greek-speaking, yes, yes. They were from Antioch, yes, yes, all of that. But you say they were Christians first. Because they were Christians first, they felt that brotherhood with those who were Christians elsewhere in the world, wherever they were found. And the question for us is an obvious one. Are we Christians first? Is that the most important thing about us? Are we most of all happy to be followers of Jesus Christ? Oh, yes, we're a man or a woman, or we have this job or that job, or all sorts of things that produce distinctions among us. But are we first of all Christians? Well, if so, gospel will go forward. God will bless it. God will give the leaders we need. And as it says here, great numbers of people will be brought to the Lord through such a witness. Let us pray. Our Father, help us to be what we ought to be, what we are by grace, Christians. Be Christians first. Give us sensitivity to your leading and thankfulness for the ways in which you've blessed, especially for those that you've given to lead us. Our Father, be with them, bless them. Grant that their ministries might not only be fruitful, but that they might be recognized also for their ministries exercised in obedience to and out of love for Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. You're listening to the Bible Study Hour with the Bible teaching of Dr. James Boyce, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Riken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Reverend Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free. 1-800-488-1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at AllianceNet.org. For Canadian gifts, mail those to 237 Rouge Hills Drive, Scarborough, Ontario, M1C, 2Y9. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to the Bible Study Hour.